first one last week, and then chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus. Now we're going to look at the letter to the church of Smyrna. It was, it was the suffering church. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Smyrna. For these are the words of the, of the one who is the first and the last, <clears throat> the, the one who became a corpse but came back to life. I am aware of all the painful difficulties you have passed through in your financial hardships, even though, in fact, you possess rich treasure. And I am fully aware of the slander that has come against you from those who claim to be Jews but are not, for they are a satanic congregation. How would you like to have that prophetic word said about your church? Yeah. Yeah, you guys think you're the real deal, but you're actually a synagogue of Satan. Yeah. Verse 10, do not yield to fear in the face of the suffering to come, but be aware of this. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison to test your faith. For 10 days, you will have distress. Now, this 10 days is going to kind of unlock some things for us because obviously it's symbolic. For 10 days, you will have distress, but remain faithful to the day you die, and I will give you the victor's crown of life. Verse 11, the one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is presently saying to all the churches. The one who conquers will not be harmed by the second death. All right, here we go. So again, we got uh, Jesus. He's walking in the middle of his churches. He's giving seven prophetic messages. So this is one of the messages that he's giving here. And here, it's an interesting time in the church history because they're caught right in between the old covenant and the new covenant. Their whole lives, they've been Jews and they've grown up living under the old covenant. And so now they're getting born again. And they're seeing that Jesus, the Messiah, was actually the completion of the covenant. And so most of this instruction is really helping them learn how to live in the kingdom of God, how to live in the, under the new covenant. And even though these things were written 2,000 years ago, I hope you guys are seeing, like, the church is still dealing with a lot of these same issues. We have not yet perfectly learned how to walk on the new covenant. Can is anyone like, humbly admit that? You know, I haven't got it 100% right. And so uh, he says, write the following to the messenger of the congregation of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was an actual church in an actual city in Asia Minor. Today, it would be Izmir, Turkey, would be where it would be located. And the name Smyrna, remember, everything, um, most things are symbolic here. The name Smyrna means sweet-smelling. You can see the word myrrh right in the middle of Smyrna, uh, which uh, myrrh was an embalming spice. And it was kind of bitter until it was burned, and then it released a sweet fragrance. And so throughout Scripture, myrrh became this emblem of suffering love. And so here's this uh, church in Smyrna, right under the persecution of the Roman church. And he says, you know what? Even though you're persecuted, you're, the, you're my Smyrna. You're that sweet, fragrant love being offered up to me. So Jesus, he, um, he's so amazing. He, before he says anything to the church, asking them to do anything, make any changes, here's what he says. He always gives a revelation of who he is. Have you guys noticed this? I love how he does this in all these letters. The revelation of Jesus has the ability to supply whatever you need. I know that sounds like one of those great Christian phrases, like Jesus is all I need. I want you, there's a reason it's a great Christian phrase, because Jesus is all you need. There's not a need in your life that a revelation of Jesus, the proper revelation of Jesus, wouldn't supply. I want you guys to get this. And here's this church that's moving from the old covenant. Under the old covenant, the law demanded. Under the new covenant, grace supplies. That's a totally different deal. We have, we have a lot of Christians who are trying to live under the new old covenant. The new old covenant is, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, but I'm still going to do it on my own strength. I think I can. I think I'm going to double my efforts. I'm going to rededicate my efforts. Here's the bottom line of this passage. I'm just going to give you the bottom line, and then I'm going to explain it to you. Jesus is coming to give them a revelation of himself that's able to lift them out of their suffering, poverty, and prisons so they can wear the crown of life. All right, so let's see what this revelation is of Jesus that's going to lift them out of their suffering, poverty, and prisons and give them the crown of life. 
He says this, for these are the words of the one who's the beginning and the end, the one who became a corpse but came back to life. Let's look at the phrase, uh, who died and came back to life. Jesus is saying, I want you to know I have resurrection power in my hands, and I have the ability to give you resurrection life and resurrection power. Like I said, I think a lot of Christians are trying to live out of the new old covenant, but here's, I love this passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Now Christ lives his life in you. Man, that's a powerful phrase. Now Christ lives his life in you, and even though your body may be dead because of the effects of sin, his life-giving spirit imparts life to you because you are fully accepted by God. Yes, God raised Jesus to life, and since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, he will also raise your dying body to life by the same spirit that breathes life into you. Thank you. Somebody's getting this. Resurrection power is available to you as a believer. Now, if my staff would let me use props, I'm very clumsy, and so, uh, you know, I was going to use a boiling pot of water for this one, but for obvious reasons, um, yeah, last time I used a giant sword and almost chopped off my finger. How many guys were there for that one? I almost chopped them, yeah. It was totally humiliating. So I just want you in your imagination to imagine a pot of boiling hot water, a cup, and a tea bag. Are we seeing it now? Can you guys see this? And so you, uh, it's an interesting thing. So when you put the uh, water in there, when you actually put the tea in the tea bag, the water doesn't really do a whole lot of work. It, there's nothing for it to do except to receive the strength of the tea. And all of the properties of the tea get infused into the water without any work of the water. And it changes it so much that we no longer call it plain, boring, tasteless water. We call it tea. The life of the tea bag has gone, and the tea leaves has gone into the water. And so transformed that it becomes something new. It's interesting. This is the exact same picture in Scripture that we have of what Jesus did with us. Philippians 4.13 says, Paul says, I've learned the secret that I can do all things through Christ who infuses his strength into me. Man, what an amazing picture. Now listen, we don't become God, and God doesn't become us. Okay, they're still distinct. But somehow his life is so infused into us that we're able to live out of the strength of another person. Paul says, I've discovered this secret. It's being fused to a person. It's about having a dynamic relationship with a person where I'm not just living under the new old covenant. I'm saved, but i got to try so hard. No, no, no. You trying hard, that's the old covenant. You living out of the strength of another person, that's the new covenant. Whenever you think the Christian life is hard, well, you've actually got it wrong. It's actually impossible. Okay, like you're trying to do it in your own strength, none of it works. Like having patience with a two-year-old or raising the dead, it's all impossible. The only thing that makes it possible is learning the secret that you've been infused to another person, that you can live on the strength. And, his, and, the, and the properties of Christ get so infused into you that we get to be called Christians and we get to become the light of the world. He's called the light of the world. Now we get to be the light of the world, right? We need the quickening of the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection to work in those places in our lives that have nothing but decay. So Jesus continues. He says, listen, I'm aware, verse 9, I'm aware of all the painful difficulties. Uh, one, one translation says uh, tribulations. Uh, the English Standard Version says, I know your tribulation that you have passed through and your financial hardships. Here, here's the English Standard Version. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Isn't that interesting? I believe this is the condition of many Christians is we stay in the state of suffering because we don't know what we have access to. You guys know you can have a million dollars in the bank account, but if you don't have any way to access it or even know that it's there, you'll live as if you're a pauper. Here they are, they're like, man, I'm so poor. And he's like, actually, you're rich. We stay in a state of... I believe that the church of Smyrna was staying in a state of suffering because they didn't know what they had. 
We perish for a lack of knowledge, in case you didn't get that one. Yeah, yeah. You guys got it right. That was good. I'm just thinking the people else on the recording. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Listen, you might be the poorest person in the room financially. Maybe you had a, you've hardly had enough money to scrape together to even make it here today. Here's what I want you to know. If you possess Jesus, you possess the richest treasure of all. I want you guys to get that. Literally, anything that you need, he can supply from his person. He has blessed you in Jesus. Listen, we don't evaluate our lives by our economic status. Here's how I like to say it. Don't get your self-worth from your net worth. Okay? We are all rich in him. I don't believe that there's a prosperity gospel, but I do believe the gospel of the kingdom includes prosperity. The gospel does prosper people. But you can have everything in the world provided for you, but if you don't have access to what Jesus has provided, then we're going to live as paupers. So I think this church was experiencing a suffering. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And he says right in the middle of it, even though you're rich. So here's what I hear the Lord saying to the church of Smyrna and to the church of Powell. You're going through a lot of stuff needlessly because you, because you don't know what you already have. You're going through this suffering. I just feel like I'm poor, even though you're rich. We'll get more to that when you see about those 10 days coming up here. Are we doing okay? Am I going too fast? All right. All right. Um, and I'm fully aware of the slander that has come against you from those who claim to be Jews but are not, for they are the satanic congregation. I'm sorry. That is just incredible. <clears throat> I think other translations say synagogue of Satan. It's just like, oh, my goodness. So what is that? They claim to be Jews who are not. <clears throat> So the, uh, the Roman Empire at this time, they were, they were in charge, and they were oppressing everybody, and everybody had to worship the emperor except for the Jews. The Jews got a little escape clause from doing it, and so they had a way that they honored the emperor without worshiping the emperor. They kind of got this escape clause. I think the Romans were like, listen, these Jews are so pesky, let's just give them an escape clause. So what happened is the Jews began to uh, send word to Rome that these Christians, they're not part of us, and they're not worshiping you. Okay, so, they began to, so the Jews began persecuting the Christians by kind of taking them out from under the umbrella. Now Rome is coming down on the Christians. It got really bad. And so here's what the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Rome about these, Jew, these people who think they're Jews. They think they're on the inside because of their ethnic group, because of their heritage, because of their genealogy. Here's what he says in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. You are not a Jew if it's only superficial. For it's more than a surgical cut of a knife that makes you Jewish. So one of the things that um, made the Jews distinct was circumcision. Um, can you pull up that picture? of? Cir- no, I'm just teasing. We're not going to have a picture of that. <laughs> Verse 29, but you are Jewish because of an inward act of spiritual circumcision. Thank you very much. A radical change that lays bare your heart. It's not by the principle of the written code, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. For then your praise will not come from people, but from God himself. He's saying, listen, you're not a Jew if you're just a Jew inwardly. It's not an outward circumcision. It's an act of the Spirit that makes you a true Jew. Okay, so he says he's got these people that think they're Jewish because they're heritage, but here's what makes you a true Jew. Listen, it gets even more graphic in John 8, verses 39 through 44. Uh, Jesus is basically just laying it to them pretty straight. Here's what he says. Here's the, the, the response of the Pharisees. What do you mean, they replied? Abraham is our father. <clears throat> Jesus, he's about to give them some real talk here. If you are really Abraham's sons, then you would follow in the steps of Abraham. I've only told you the truth that I've heard in my father's presence, but now you're wanting me dead. Is that how Abraham acted? No, you people are doing what your father has taught you. 
Indignant, they responded, what are you talking about? We have only one father, God himself. We're not illegitimate. Jesus said, then if God were really your father, you would love me, for I've come from his presence. I didn't come here on my own, but God sent me to you. Why don't you understand what I say? You don't understand because your hearts are closed to my message. You are the offspring of your father, the devil. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, these people, they were so devout. I mean, these weren't just like a bunch of like, you know, idiots just trying to be goofballs. These are people who had dedicated their lives to serving God. And look what he's telling them. You are of the, of the offspring of your father, the devil, and you serve your father very well, passionately carrying out his desires. <laughs> he's been a murderer right from the start. He never stood with the truth, for he's full of nothing but lies. Lying is his native tongue. He's a master of deception and the father of lies. So here's how I believe Jesus is saying when he um, called them the satanic congregation. He says, listen, you are serving Satan's purposes. You're persecuting, you're, you're opposing. The word Satan literally means the adversary, okay? And so these people, they were known as Judaizers. And so what happened is when a person would, so you had kind of two groups. You had the Jews who were saying, they we're not any part of these Christians, but then you had the people that Paul dealt with all through the New Testament. So a Gentile would become a Christian, and they would say, okay, if you're going to be a real Christian, then you're going to have to become Jewish too. You need to keep all the festivals and all the feasts and all the fasts and all the new moon festivals and keep kosher and all that stuff, right? Can we just settle this once and for all? You are not more appealing to God if you keep the Jewish feasts and the Passovers and the holy days and celebrate Shabbat and do all those things. What makes you pleasing to God is that you are united to his son. It's not an outward act of circumcision or holy days or, like, listen, if you want to wear a prayer shawl, wear a prayer shawl, but just don't act like if we're not wearing prayer shawls, you're more spiritual. So it's just as wrong for a Jew to try to make a Gentile keep Jewish things, and it's just as wrong for Gentiles to tell the Jews, you need to knock that stuff off. Listen, if that makes them feel close to God and it's part of their spirituality and part of their heritage and they see it as being completed in Jesus the Messiah, then, man, go for it. But neither one gets us doing it or not doing it gets us any more favor with God. What gets us favor with God is that we've accepted his son. We put our trust in his son. He's the one who has completed this whole thing. Are we okay? Hopefully I offended the Jews and the Gentiles equally. And so there we go. All right. Verse 10, are we all right? <laughs> I, felt, I was a little nervous about that one, but it's true. All right, verse 10. Do not yield to fear in the face of the suffering about to come, but be aware of this. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison to test your faith. Oh, there's a prophetic word over your life. <laughs> Yea, that I say unto you. Like, man. Listen to this part, though. This is interesting. For 10 days you will have distress, but remain faithful to the day you die, and I will give you the victor's crown of life. Let's talk about these 10 days. Okay, so again, this is a book of symbols. And so in the Old Testament, there was something called the Feast of Trumpets. It took place on the first day of the seventh month. And guess what? Ten days later, there was the Day of Atonement. Here's these ten days in Scripture. So there was, this, there was a blast of a, like a trumpet sound from a ram's horn. What's a ram's horn? It's a dead male lamb. So there was a message coming from this dead male lamb. On the first day, and 10 days later, it was announcing this Day of Atonement. And here's what took place. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Day of Atonement? How many of you have heard of the 10 days of awe? Have you guys have heard of that? Okay. So this comes out of Leviticus 16. And so, uh, well, th this is about to get good here. This is about to get good. Leviticus 16. Anytime you can use Leviticus and Revelation in a sermon, 
I just feel like there's some bonus points somewhere. I don't know. Leviticus 16.29, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Okay? So again, on the first day of the seventh month, there will be this blast, this feast of trumpets, recognizing. Here's the deal, guys. Those ten days of awe, those afflicting of the soul, your soul is your mind, your will, and emotions. This is a metaphor for you need to renew your mind. You need to hear that trumpet blast. You need to renew your mind to the atoning work of Christ. And when you recognize that the atoning work of Christ is enough, your 10 days of tribulation and suffering will be over. What's happening in these 10 days? They're living as if they're poor. They're suffering things needlessly. It's interesting, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says, anyone who takes away or adds to, these, um, takes away or adds to this book, I will add to them the plagues. So I'm like, when I'm reading that, I'm like, I would never preach in the book of Revelation. Like, if there's a danger of doing it wrong, I'm going to get the plagues added. Why would I be doing it? Because it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you take away any part of that revelation of Jesus Christ, then you won't have victory over that plague. One of the plagues is sickness. If you teach that Jesus doesn't want you to, uh, you know, he didn't pay for healing in his atonement, that he uses sickness to make you more like Jesus, I got some good news for you. Sickness doesn't make you more like Jesus. Jesus isn't sick. You were to say, I'm saying, when we, when we take away those things, it adds to those 10 days of suffering. But when we come to a revelation of the knowledge of his atonement and what he actually paid for, our suffering, our tribulation ends. The 10 days are not a literal 10 days. They simply represent the transition time it takes to come to an understanding of what Jesus' atonement has produced. Unfortunately, many people have been stuck in this period most of their lives. They've lived like strangers in the land of promise. And here's the, here's the deal, church. It's time for us to afflict our souls and exercise our riches in Christ and spend our inheritance to be a blessing to this planet. Jesus is saying you're going to be in prison until you come to a revelation of what the atoning work of Jesus did. And so the devil, he casts people, keeps them in bondage. All prisons aren't on earth. They're in your mind. Until 10 days, until you come to the revelation of Jesus and his atoning work, you're going to continue to struggle and suffer. So, gang, it's time to afflict our souls. It's time to repent. It's time to have Jesus unveiled so we can come out of this prison. And the moment you get a revelation of what Jesus did, you're going to realize, I'm rich. I'm rich because he became poor so that in his poverty, I could become rich. How are we doing? All right. We've almost made it through the whole passage here. But I saved some of the best for last, all right? Fresh manna. All right. Let's look at the next part. For 10 days you will have distress, but remain faithful to the the day you die, and I will will give you the victor's crown of life. Hmm. So the crown of life was actually the border of of um, of the Ark of the Covenant that was inside the tabernacle. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus. I love this picture. It's a, there's an angel on each side. Remember, there's a cherubim on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. And so if you remember what happened when, when Jesus was in the grave, what happened? There was, a, there was an angel on each side. The Ark actually has become, the judgment seat has now been transformed into a mercy seat. The body of Jesus, the grave of Jesus has actually become that. And it was bordered by this crown of life, picturing the thoughts on your head, everything that you think about the, the, uh, the finished work of the cross. It becomes that picture. 
A crown speaks of something you put on your head, and it's always placed on the head of a king. And so when our thinking lines up with the finished work of the cross, we'll have this, uh, this mentality of rulership, kingdom authority, and dominion. Listen to Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass, speaking of the first Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of, life, free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus received a crown of thorns so that we could receive a crown of life. And he has made us be kings and priests unto God. Jesus identified with us in the first Adam by becoming a human in his death, burial, and resurrection. He put to death that, whole, uh, that old humanity. And now he has become the last Adam, a new race of being never existing before. Remember how he introduced himself? He says, I am the first and the last. The first and the last what? He identified with the first Adam and all of our sin, and now he became the last Adam, a new race of beings pleasing to God because of what he has done. Verse 11. We're on the final verse here, gang. We're, we're moving. The one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is presently saying to all the churches. The one who conquers will not be harmed by the second death. I think that's self-explanatory. I'm just kidding. It's not. All right. The second death is only mentioned in the book of Revelation, and it's mentioned four times. Here's the first reference to it. Biblically speaking, from a biblical understanding, the first death took place when Adam and Eve fell, and they introduced death into the world. That separation from God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So because of Adam, all of us were born spiritually dead. It's interesting. So guys, from, a, uh, from heaven's perspective, it's a two-person show. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. If you are in Adam, you are currently experiencing the first death, separation from God. That's why it's being called born again. Your spirit was dead to God. Now it's made alive to God because the Holy Spirit has come and joined his spirit to your spirit. So now we can worship him in spirit and in truth. We can worship him the right way through Jesus. Are we okay? So let's look at this first death. So the first death is that spiritual death, that separation from God. Let's look at the second death here. Um, let me just give you the bottom line. It's unending separation for those who reject Jesus. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Wonderfully blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death holds no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Christ, and they will reign as kings with him for a thousand years. So believers will not be affected by this second death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. The death and the realm of the dead were cast into the lake of fire, for the lake of fire is the second death. All right, so the final judgment, the lake of fire. We'll get to that hopefully before Jesus comes back at this pace that we're going here. The judgment, the lake of fire, that's the time when the second death occurs. I'm going to go through this in a little bit more. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the despicable, the murderers, I want you to see it's interesting, um, the faithless. Is put, the, the, uh, I think another translation says, uh, uh, those wavering of faith, the unbelievers, is put next to murderers, perverts, sorcerers, the idolaters, and all deceivers. They will find their place in the lake of fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the second death is reserved for unbelievers, and those who experience the second death are the ones who do not have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The same uh, words that are used to describe God as eternal are the same words that are used to describe hell as eternal. Okay, so if you're wondering, is this a church that doesn't believe in hell? No, it's in the Bible. We, we, 
There may be parts that we don't like, but they're in there. And so I'm going to see if we can help us understand a little bit more. But listen, you don't have to apologize for God. You don't have to wonder if he's running his kingdom in a proper way or if he's maybe doing some things that are a little inappropriate. Okay? We don't have to worry about him. We don't have to apologize to him. God is always right. God is always just, which means he's just right. Okay? <laughs> so why is there a hell? Anyone want to answer this one? No, I'm just so there's, uh, one of my favorite writers is Dallas Willard, and he's really helped my thinking here. I love this. Are you ready for this? Many people simply do not want to be with God. The best place for them is to be wherever God is not, and that is what hell is. The fundamental reality of hell is separation from God, and that comes about because people do not want to be with him. For those people, being with God is the worst thing that could possibly happen to them. God is not going to force himself on people. And part of our problem with the understanding of hell comes from the way we think about heaven. We think about heaven as some kind of comfortable resort, but the greatest thing about heaven is going to be the presence of God. He has allowed us to avoid him here on earth in some measure if we want to, but if you go to heaven, God's the biggest thing on the horizon. You're no longer going to be able to avoid him, and that would be a supreme torture if you haven't gotten over thinking of yourself as God. That's why sometimes I say that the fires of heaven burn hotter than the fires of hell. Of course, it is not God's will that anyone should perish. God's not trying to keep people out of heaven. He's trying to get them into heaven. Some people think that God is sort of up there with his foot against the door, unwilling to let people in. Well, he is willing. But the issue is, can you stand to be there? And if you made it, would it be heaven to you or would it be something much worse? C.S. Lewis wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Jesus was constantly trying to unfold people into his kingdom. He was not trying to send people to hell. He was trying to get as many people into heaven as he could. We need to understand that's where God's heart is. God did not create hell because he's mad, because he wants to see people suffer, and he enjoys torturing them for eternity. The only reason there is a hell is because God makes provision for what people want, and hell is simply the best God can do for some people. It's powerful. Those who do not enter into the eternal kind of life now through confidence in Jesus will experience separation, isolation, and the end of their hopes. And God permits it because it can only happen at a sustained distance from God. The fires of heaven are hotter than the fires of hell. And interesting. I tell you what, guys, uh, whatever you believe about hell, it should make you want to evangelize more. Whether you believe it's temporary, whether you believe the lake of fire, the fire's God himself and he's redeeming people, all these different things. There's, there's a lot of metaphors in there, but one thing is for certain, um, it ain't good for however long people stay there. And so uh, the, the way that I read it, it seems to be eternity. I, I, there, there's parts of me that just wish it wasn't that clear, but um, it is. So here's what I want to do. We're not done yet. I'm going I'm to end with a little different way, but I think we need to pray for the lost. I think that we need to just recognize that the people that you're angry at in politics, they need Jesus. Okay? The people that have a different kind of lifestyle, uh, different views on sexuality and marriage and gender, they need to see the love of Jesus. Because if they don't see it now, they're not going to experience it in eternity. So, um, so angry Christian on Facebook, uh, if you're listening to me on this, getting ready to write a nasty comment on the YouTube comments. Um, that's not the heart of the Father.
it's interesting. He says he's already reconciled the entire world to himself. From his perspective, he's removed all the obstacles. He's standing there with his arms open no matter how bad, you know. I've often wondered this, you know, it's like to one, to one person, a hug I don't know if you've ever seen a kid, like when the parents are trying to hug them and they're like squirming to get away and they're acting like it's like the worst torture in the world. I wondered if hell's something like that. It's like the love of God to people who love him, it's the most wonderful thing. But to the people who despise him and hate him, his love becomes the very thing that tortures them. Just some thoughts. I don't have any proof. That's gymology there. That's not scripture. It's close, but it's from scripture. It's not like my own vain imaginations. But, I, you know, I just think in charismatic circles, we don't talk about hell very often, and, um, and that's fine. I mean, the scripture is not like it talks about it all the time, but I think it needs to be on our radar. And so um, we've got a list of names over there on the willing wall, and so you're, you're welcome to add to them just people that you want to see come to know Jesus. And uh, it's interesting, what happens a lot of times is those names get transferred over to the testimony wall when they get born again. And so we want to see more and more of that. I'd love to have to, you know... Make this whole sanctuary a testimony wall. Well, actually, we just keep recycling them. But anyway, wouldn't that be awesome? We really got so flooded with that. But here's, uh, here's how I think we should pray for unbelievers. Because we can't pray that God changes their will. He doesn't force himself on people. Okay? And so you actually don't see an example of anyone praying for the lost in Scripture. That's offensive. What we do see is um, praying that he would raise up uh, laborers. And so, um, but you can't pray that God changes somebody's will. So here's what I think, here's some things I think that we can pray. Are we okay with this? If anyone's got a scripture that disagrees with that, come show me privately. Don't call me out right now. But anyway, (laughs) um, it says that Satan has blinded the the eyes of unbelievers. And so I believe that we have authority over Satan and we can pray that God, uh, we take authority over that blindness. And then we can pray that God raises up laborers to share the good news, to be the aroma of Christ, to be a contagious Christian and uh, show them what God is like and those things. And guess what? You may be the answer to that prayer. As you're taking authority over that blindness, you may be the person who needs to um, take a cup of cold water to them, to get jackets in the neighborhood and show them the love of God. I was talking to a guy yesterday, and um, he was talking about, you know, we both grew up in, in similar uh, religious circumstances in a good way. And we talk about how, you know, there's missionaries who go over to um, Islamic countries and work for years and don't see one conversion. And uh, he is interesting. He's a businessman, and he teaches uh, business principles from a biblical perspective, but he doesn't quote the Bible. But just the winsomeness of it, he was speaking at a conference, and these three Muslims came up dressed in their Muslim garb, and they said, garb, and they said listen, we are, thinking, we are uh, looking to convert to Christianity because the Bible that you teach is more relevant to our lives than the Quran is. These guys simply got, got aroused to it because of the, the, the winsomeness of Scripture being taught that way. Isn't that interesting? I think we need more of that. I think there's probably more of that going on than we even know with what's happening with our lives. But anyway, I don't want to just keep going on and on. Let's, um, let's take some time and pray. At your table, if there's a person that you know of that needs the Lord, let's just call out their name before the Lord. Let's take authority over that blindness. Let's pray that God raises up somebody any of everyone in here knows somebody who needs who needs Jesus, and um, if it's somebody at at the table that uh, you know, let's not embarrass anybody. You know, you don't have to like get, get specific and give details and stuff like that. But if they need Jesus, um, I know prayer changes history. Okay, so let's take a few moments and just uh, don't, don't give long explanations, but just hey, I've got this brother, I've got this sister, I've got this and that, and then boom, pray.
Next person, boom. So, all right, see you in a few minutes. If we can get a little background music, maybe it helps people pray a little more. Thanks.
Let's take about another 60 seconds. About 30 more seconds. All right, let's kind of wrap it up here. I feel guilty asking you to stop praying. It just feels wrong, but <laughs> you can pray without ceasing. Keep praying in your minds. There we go. Here's how I want to end this. So Smyrna is the suffering church, and I do believe that those 10 days of suffering are what we talked about. It's the, it's the afflicting of the soul coming into the revelation of his atonement. That's when we get out of the prison. I do believe that's the spiritual application. I do believe that's the symbolic application. But the church of Smyrna, they actually did receive physical persecution from the authorities. And here's the thing, guys. There is suffering. Um, we as believers have been redeemed from suffering, from sin, sickness. We've been saved, healed, delivered, prospered, and protected. We've been delivered from that kind of suffering. So God does not use you know, sickness on us to teach us a lesson. I mean, there's some people that teach that, but you know, they're weird. You know, he, he bore our sickness, carried our pain. By his stripes, we are healed. Like, he carried the suffering. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Like, like he became all those things so that we can enjoy, you know. Jesus got what we deserved so we can get what he deserved, okay? But there is a kind of suffering that the New Testament talks about for the believer that we are not redeemed from, and that's persecution. Persecution is, is uh, here's actually what Timothy says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, it comes from being a bright light in a dark place. It comes from people not wanting to believe the same way as you. And uh, you know, I think in America, we're at pretty low-level persecution right now. I mean, people might uh, write something nasty on your Facebook page. Maybe you'll lose your job. And so, uh, <clears throat> but we're at low-level persecution. But there are times in history, and in Smyrna was in one of those times in history, where they did have severe persecution. I do want to end with praying for the, for the persecuted church here in just a second. But... <clears throat> I want you guys to just, they're so prevalent in the teaching that we suffer for Jesus and part of that suffering is sickness. I just have to make sure we don't believe that. I was at a charismatic Christian conference and so I was sitting in the day session. I was going to be speaking in the evening and the speaker is literally talking about how he has MS and God has given him this MS as a gift. And he's become so close to Jesus through this that he wishes that everybody could have it, I thought. 
And then, uh, so I got up and taught the exact opposite of it that evening. I didn't mention him, but I was, as he was teaching, I'm looking at Mary, I'm like, my message is like the opposite of this. This is going to be uncomfortable, but um, what are you going to do, right? Low-level persecution again. And so, the, uh, so we did that. It was interesting. He came up into our healing line, and so we were praying for healing at the end. He came up for healing. I said, listen, I'm not trying to be a jerk. And I said, but um, I thought you said this was a gift. Why would you ask for it to leave? He said, huh? I said, oh, how about we pray a double portion on you? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, bro, that's what you got up and taught. You put that bondage on people that this is some kind of suffering for Jesus, and you spiritualized it when he actually paid for it. That kind of junk we have been redeemed from. Thank you, Jesus. Every effect of sin we have been redeemed from. Okay? Even death has an answer. It's the resurrected body. I mean, we, 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 have, we have all answers, everything. But we have not been redeemed from the suffering that talks about for the believer in the New Testament consistently is persecution. And we, we, have, we will face that. So I want to tell you a story about Polycarp. How many of you guys have ever heard of Polycarp? So he was a first century. He was actually uh, lived in the first century, but extended into the second century. He was, a, he was a disciple of John, and he became the bishop of the church of Smyrna. He became the leader of the church. So John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, John the Beloved, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that guy, right? And so he, uh, this was his most famous disciple, and Polycarp was known to be one of the godliest people who ever lived. He was just known for his love. And so uh, right in about the middle of the second century there, so he's, a, he's an old man by then. I think, he, I think we're going to see he's 86 years old here in a second. But the Romans uh, got wind that he was not going to worship the emperor, and so they sent a, a, a bunch of troops to come and get him at his house. God gave him a dream the night before and showed him that you're going to be burned alive at the stake. So here's what, here's what Polycarp does, is he knows that these soldiers are going to be traveling a great distance to Smyrna to get him, and so he makes them a giant meal. And so when they get there, he says, listen, I'm going to come with you willingly, but he says, uh, I know you've come a long distance. Let's sit down and enjoy this meal together. And so he feeds the men... They're impressed, and they're so impressed with him. He says, listen, um, I know I'm about to go to my death. Can I have one hour to pray? And so he goes, and he prays for one hour, and it turns into two hours, and he's praying for the souls of these soldiers. And as he's praying, the fiery presence of God begins to manifest, and these soldiers don't even know what to do with it. He's praying for their souls. So at the end of two hours, he says, I'm going to go willingly now, because these soldiers, they didn't want to take him, but they knew if they didn't, it would mean their lives. And so they take him uh, to this arena, and the governor is there, and uh, here's what the, the, the proconsul said to Polycarp. If you don't renounce Christ, you will die. Worship Caesar and you will live. If you adhere to Christ, you will die. Here's Polycarp's response. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, for you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked and the judgment to come. What are you waiting for? Come on, do what you will. It's interesting. So they, uh, they lead him towards the fire. Or no, actually, they, have him, uh, uh, they start leading him towards the wood pile. <clears throat> and he says, you don't need to chain me. I'll stand here. And as they light the fire, two supernatural things take place. As they light the fire, the fire arches and surrounds him, but it doesn't burn him. So he's standing in the middle of the flames, unburned, and just worshiping Jesus. And so uh, the proconsul doesn't like this. So he sends a soldier to go and run Polycarp through with a spear. So he stabs him in the side, and two supernatural things happen. One, he bleeds so much that it puts out the fire completely. The second thing that happens was a physical dove manifested in his side and flew out in front of all the soldiers. And then he died. 
That was the pastor of the church of Smyrna <clears throat> who received this letter from Jesus. And he says, listen, your suffering is just temporary. Now, I know we don't see a lot of it in, in America at this time. I don't know what the future holds. But just in case you didn't know, this is actually what you signed up for. You know, uh, you, your old life is dead, and now we are living completely for him. There may come a time, like you guys know, I don't normally talk like this, but there may come a time when you give your life for the gospel. I was just talking to, some, uh, talking to a friend of mine, they were in Pakistan, and they had their lives threatened several times uh, preaching the gospel over there. And there's parts of the world. So here's what I want to do is I want to just uh, end by praying for the persecuted church. Places like China and Albania and especially those Muslim countries and Pakistan. There's, there's just so many of them. And if you have a missionary friend that you know of, then we're not going to call them out and just we want to protect them. But let's just take this time and pray for the persecuted church. So, Lord, we are so thankful that we are enjoying favor with God and favor with people right now. We're so thankful for that. And so we know that some places, it's literally costing them lives. Lord, we hear those stories of Heidi, Heidi Baker where their pastors are having their tongues cut off. <clears throat> Or they're being, villages are being burned alive, or Christians are being shot. Lord, we can't even imagine, but I ask you for a grace for those places, that the sweetness of Jesus, that the power of the resurrection would be there, that protection would be there. And so, Lord, we pray for those places. We pray for those pastors, that you would give them wisdom, Lord, that they, you would be so near to them during these times. And, Lord, just us as a church, I pray that we would just strengthen our resolve, that, God, this life is not all that there is. This isn't a game. This isn't just a social club. But, Lord, we are, we are part of your family to transform this world. And so, Lord, we pray for those places. We pray for protection, God, where that is possible. We pray with, uh, for those who are being tortured for their faith, that you would give them a grace to not even feel the pain, but to just enjoy you. We love you, Lord. We are so thankful. But, Lord, our heart is heavy for our brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus, amen. One of the, um, one of the famous um, modern-day martyrs is uh, Richard Wormbrand. He was uh, tortured for the Lord, he was held in a prison for so long. And he talked about how when he, would, um, when he would be tortured, the angels would appear to him. And the grace that he received was so sweet, he was sorry when the torture was over. Isn't that incredible? That's what we're praying for these people, that they would have that kind of grace of the Lord that it would, it would outweigh their present suffering. So here's what I'm going to close this before we transition, is if you're here today and you do not know the Lord, I and mean, we've been talking about the second death, and you're, you're currently living in that first death, you're separated from God, you don't know who he is, and you're like, Jim, I want to know this Jesus, I want to be able to be delivered from the sufferings of this world, from to be saved, healed, delivered, prospered, and protected, to know this Jesus, and, um, and, and live my life with him, not just for him. And so if you're here today and you're like, Jim, I want to know this Jesus, and I want to put my trust in him, I'm just going to ask you to do something real brave. We're not going to make you stand, but uh, just raise your hand if, if that's you, and you're saying, listen, I want to trust Jesus today. I don't know him, but today is my day. I want, to, I want to make that step of faith. Is there anybody here? You can just raise your hand. We're going to, we'd love to pray with you. Anybody? All right. If you raise your hand, I didn't see you, and so... Um, and uh, hey, if you're watching online, just put something in the chat. We've got a way that you're going to hear about to get connected. And if you wanted to raise your hand and you didn't, you can come pray with our prayer team at the end here. But uh, God is good, all right? All right, to the one who overcomes, they get the crown of life. All right, bless you guys.